So when we see it, uh, we admire it. Um, When we see it, we pause, we admire, and we remember. And that is uh, when we see a person lay down his or her life for another. And that, that price of laying down, it may be their entire life, as in the case of a soldier who might lay down his or her life um, either uh, for, uh, for those who are near or for us as a nation. Or it could be less than a life. It could be a sacrifice of comfort or freedom, as in the amazing sacrifices that parents oftentimes make for their kids, as you see here, where a father would part with the umbrella and he would absorb all of the water to make sure that his son stays stays dry. When we see these kinds of things, when we see a person lay down his life for another, we, we are aware that we are recognizing a kind of greatness. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. And that said, when you think about Jesus, what we're thinking about is the most Um, admirable, the greatest person who's ever walked the face of the earth, because he's not only given his life, he gave his life for all of us. And he did so at a time when we were most undeserving. Isaiah says it this way. He says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. It should have been us. It was our transgressions, our iniquity. It was our chastisement. It should have been our wounds, but it wasn't. And it wasn't because of his amazing love for us. This month, as we lead up to Easter, we want to look and examine um, many of the um, incredibly painful steps that Jesus endured in our place in order to bring us peace. And the first one we want to look at is that Jesus was betrayed in our place. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, uh, we're going to read through several verses there. Uh, My hope in this series is very, very clear. I hope it's clear to you. And that is for those of you who know Christ and who love Christ, If there's a flame in your heart that burns when you think of Jesus and there's a clear affection, you pay attention to him, you care about his word, then what I hope is that this series is simply going to take a fan and it's just going to blow more air upon that flame, that it burns brighter and it gets hotter and hotter and that God is going to use this in your life to grow the love that you have for him. For some of us, we know Christ as Savior and Lord, and yet if you look at your spiritual life, and if you look at the flame in your heart, if you can imagine one there that represents your love for Christ, is that you may say that there were other times in your life where that flame was hotter and brighter than it is now. And my prayer for you is that God uses this series to to lead you to repent And turn to your first love. That other things that have crowded in on your attention and your affection. That they would be seen as inferior to Jesus. And that in seeing what this person, Jesus Christ, did in your place. Is that it would intensify the the fire in your own heart. And then we know that there's many who are guests. And if you are a guest here at Providence, we're so glad that you're here. I hope that you feel encouraged. I hope that you feel welcome because you are 
If you don't know the Lord, my prayer is that as you come and if you're learning simply who Jesus is, is that this series will help you understand a little bit more about who he is and what he did for you, even if you don't know what he has done for you. And that at some point, maybe even today, that you would be inclined to give your life to Christ, to trust him and his accomplishments for your own need and for your own salvation. And so I'm going to pray for us as we get started. Father in heaven, we come before you. We know that these moments in scripture, that they are intense moments. And so as we read these intense stories, I pray, God, that you would you would, you would calm our hearts and you would remind us of your amazing gentleness and your love and your affection for us. I pray for those who may in their heart already feel a measure of apathy. I just pray that as we read your word, as we consider what you have written, what you have said to us and what you have done for us, God, that you would just stoke an incredible curiosity and an interest in the hearts of every one of us. And that you would help us to believe this, apply it to our life. And so we look to you in faith. Would you speak through weakness for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we want to look at a a wide set of verses, verse 6 to verse 50, and that's a bunch of them. And so we're not going to read every one of them. We are going to read a lot of them because there's so many of them. I'm going to break them into three sections. And so if you would, just look at verse 6 with me. This is the beginning of Holy Week, not for us, but in the story, okay? This is Saturday, um, probably the, 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 not probably, the night before Palm Sunday when he comes into Jerusalem. And this is what it says. It says, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The first thing I want you to see, a truth about Jesus, is this, that Jesus is the least deserving victim of betrayal in history. If we were to measure the amount of evil that's bound up in the act of betrayal, it would be in proportion to the goodness of the victim. And when you think about Jesus, there is nobody like Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us some amazing things about Jesus that are true. We are told that he is the king of kings. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of of heaven. The Bible says that he is the son of God and the son of man, meaning fully God and fully man, able to identify and sympathize and mediate between both. The Bible tells us that his heart is pure and his glory outshines the sun. He is the creator of all life. He's the savior of human life and he's the judge of eternal life. 
And this judge, he regards not only the old, but the young. He cares and he dignifies men and women. He welcomes and loves Jew and Gentile. His promise is sure and his love will endure forever and ever and ever. You read through the gospels and we find Jesus, he strengthens the weak and he defends the feeble and he heals the sick and he feeds the hungry and he seeks the lost and he forgives the guilty. The Bible says that one day there will be one who's born, a promised one, the Messiah, that name is Christ, our advocate, our redeemer, our substitute. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was bruised to bring us healing. He was pierced through in order to ease our pain. He was forsaken in order to be a fountain. He was buried to bring life. He was risen to bring hope. And he now reigns in order to bring peace. There is no one like him and there is no God but him, which is why Revelation tells us that heaven today is singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the goodness of Jesus Christ. He's the least deserving victim of betrayal in all of history. And yet on this day, on this Saturday in the home of Simon, the leper, a leper who was healed by Jesus. Only Mary could see his supreme worth. And we're told in the story that Mary had a treasure. It was likely a family treasure. It was something that was most likely given to her an alabaster flask of ointment. Now to be sure the flask was not the treasure. That was the container. The treasure was this very expensive ointment. And Mark tells us something is very important about these flasks and these treasures. And that word was that they had to be broken. Meaning the only way to access the treasure within was to break the flask. It could only be broken once. And so anybody who had one of these treasures, it was incumbent upon them to exercise such wisdom to break it, open it and use it at that one supreme occasion in life. Typically a wedding or a wedding of a child. You didn't want to waste it. You, you didn't want to make a mistake with it and open it for something that wasn't a celebration. The Bible says in Mark's account of this very story is that Mary, when she caught Jesus, his eye and saw his worth and saw his glory and his supremacy, she said to herself, this is that one supreme occasion. And she broke the flask, Mark tells us, and then poured the contents of this treasure over Jesus' head. And this this adoration was suddenly interrupted by anger. It says when the disciples saw it, notice it's plural, not only disciples, but they. It wasn't just one of them. It was all of them. And just for the record, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, was one of them. It says that they were indignant. The word indignant, <laughs> it, it means irate. It's a visible anger. It's not a, it's not a solidness where you're just thinking to yourself, man, I don't know. I don't think that was the best, best use of that. It was, it, it was a visible, visceral 
anger that everyone saw. Imagine this for a moment. Fortunately, John's gospel tells us something else that while all of these disciples, they all felt the same way. There was only one who found the words to be able to to describe what they felt, that anger, and it was Judas. And it was Judas who said, why this waste? You're supposed to be wise enough to keep that for one supreme moment, one occasion in life a big deal, and you just wasted it by pouring it over him, over him. Jesus must have felt the insult, but instead of protecting himself, he protected her, and he said, why do you trouble this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done it to prepare me for burial And then he goes on and he says something that's really amazing. He says, you know, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What he's saying is this, the day is coming that whenever you or anyone else tells the story of my cross and resurrection to save sinners and to bring them to heaven, your spiritual dullness and her spiritual perceptivity will be part of the story. And Matthew who was one of the indignant ones who heard this is now writing a gospel, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he fulfills just what Jesus said. And Matthew was saying, I was one of those spiritually dull people that day. I didn't see it. I didn't see what she saw. So let's be clear. Jesus is worth all the treasures. He's worth all the worship, all the loyalty, all the love in all of the world. And the question is this, does he have yours? Does he have your loyalty? Does he have your love, your attention, your affection? Does he have your resource? You see, if the health of a soul can be measured by the worth of his treasure. The question is, how healthy is your soul? And so let's consider today our affection for Jesus. And when I say consider, what I'm talking about is this. Let's consider our current affection. Is today, today. If you looked at the flame of your heart, for those of you who know Christ, is it burning brighter today than any other day in your life? For it not to be puts you at risk of doing just what we are reading about, betraying the greatest. Do you love him today? You see, we just sang some songs, didn't we? Three of them. We should evaluate that moment, shouldn't we? In that moment, we were one of these characters. We were either like Mary that says, I don't care who sees, I don't care who knows. I'm singing to Jesus. I'm going to raise my hands to him. I'm going to raise my heart to him. I'm going to pay attention to him. I'm going to sing to him. He's worthy. He is worthy of my adoration in this moment. And then there were others among us, surely, who were like the disciples who looked around and said, why this waste? Why why this expenditure of time in a service? Would we sing three songs instead of two? Why is that person singing so loud? Why is that person raising their hand? Why such a waste? 
One day, Jesus, we're told, he went to a church in Ephesus. This is in the book of Revelation, and he does what he does to every church, and he just peers in, and he looks, and he's able to see the hearts and the crevices of every heart. He sees everybody, and he sees everybody in the church there, and this is what he says to them. He says, for those in the church of Ephesus, let me tell you something. I see your works, I see your endurance, and I see your good theology. But let me tell you what I see that's not healthy. You have forsaken your first love. You don't love me like you once did. It's the most devastating thing that can be said of a church. You have the right thinking, but you have no heart for it. Tonight, we're going to pray through Revelation 1 and 2. We're going to plead that Jesus would be our first love. And so I, I welcome you to come tonight to, to plead, frankly, to plead that Jesus wouldn't do what he promised to do and then what he did do to the church in Ephesus. And then he says, and if you don't repent, if I don't become the first love, I am going to snuff out the light of your church and you won't be a church anymore. That can happen. He is the least deserving victim of betrayal in history. But is he your love today? He goes on in verse 14. He says, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, several days pass, okay? We're going to fast forward to Thursday, right? Thursday was a very important day because that's the night he's going to go to the garden. He's going to be arrested in the middle of the night. And then Friday is when he dies. And so there's a lot that happens on Thursday. When he gets to Thursday, Judas is back with the group. And this is what it says in verse 20. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered him, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. So the first truth is Jesus is the least deserving victim of betrayal in history. And the second thing is this, is that Jesus is the most patient victim of betrayal in history. If we went out to a train track and we stood on the rails and we looked and we saw a train coming at us, but it was way off and it was very slow. It was only traveling one mile an hour and it just took forever. We could stand there for a very long time. And because it's moving so slow, we could just get out of the way once it came. The story of the gospel is Jesus saw this train coming from a very long time, moving very slow. And he stayed in the middle of the track in our place. You see, Jesus knew this pain of betrayal was coming for a very long time, a thousand years before Jesus was on the earth. He inspired a man named David to write Psalm 41. And in Psalm 41, verse 9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Well, when you turn to this story in the Gospel of John, John connects the dots and he says, 
in case you're not certain who this close friend is, it's Judas. And this Judas, we're told that he left when Jesus said this in the presence of Mary. And he, he left and he went to the chief priest and he asked, he goes, look, I know you don't want to arrest him when there's a big crowd around because you're afraid of the big crowd and their loyalty to him. And so what you want is you want somebody to be able to arrange a place where you can come and arrest him when there's not a lot of people around. Well, I can pull that off, but what are you going to give me for it? 30 pieces of silver, done. Days pass, and now they're back, and they've come to this table to celebrate the Passover. And when they get there, it's a meal, and part of Jewish Custom and culture was you didn't eat until you washed your hands and your feet. There's nobody there to help. And so they had just been arguing and we're arguing who's the greatest disciple. And so no one wanted to stoop to the lowest level and help other people wash their feet. And so Jesus took off his outer garment. He wrapped a towel around himself. John 13 says that he went around and went one person after another, after another, and he began washing their feet. Can you imagine the moment when he gets to Judas? He knows what's just about to happen. He takes his feet. He washes those feet to serve him. And now all of a sudden they're eating. They're eating together and suddenly Jesus, he, he had to startle all of them. And he goes, truly, I tell you guys, one of you is going to betray me. And they start asking, right? They, they start asking, look, is it, is it I? Is it I? You just saw a verse from John that says that he knew who was going to do it. And so all of a sudden he goes, look, one of you is going to betray me. He knew. He knows what's happening. He's the most patient victim. They all start saying, well, is it I, Lord? And then he answers, look, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, some of you maybe in your life have participated in a Passover Seder, okay? It's, the, it's a celebration where, where you, um, even if you're not Jewish, like if you are Jewish, then you've probably actually participated in Passover year after year after year. Maybe growing up, maybe you still do. But the Passover was a celebration, right, that honored God delivering the people from Egypt. But it also foreshadowed the day when the Christ was going to come in order to be the final deliverer of his people. And so the, so the feast of Passover is just absolutely packed with symbolism of what God did and what he will do. It's an absolutely amazing thing. And there's a part, there's a very special part though, where the host, who's normally the dad in the home, is leading and he takes a piece of bread and he dips it into bitter herbs. And those bitter herbs are symbolic of the slavery of sin. Not just the slavery of Egypt that God rescued them out of, but also the sin in our heart that we say, I just wish I would never do that again. And yet we keep going back to it. And we feel like that all of those dark plans in our heart that I'm going to try not to do them, but man, I just keep running into them. I feel like I'm a slave to those things. Well, this was a symbol, right? That one day the Christ would come. And when the Christ would come is that, is that those chains would be broken. And as a result of that, that the dark inclinations of the heart, our dark plans, our sinful plans, we wouldn't have to carry them out when he came. And in the Passover, the host dips it and doesn't give it to everyone. He gives it to one person. It changes normally year to year. So if it's a family and you give it to each person at a different year, it's an honor that year when you receive it because it's, 
It's an invitation to say, I want you to know one day that Christ is going to come and the things that bind you and that harm you and the plans that you make, one day you won't have to carry them out. It was one final act, one final invitation, one act of love to say, I love you. You mean something to me. And the gospel of John says that Jesus dipped that piece into the bitter herbs and hands it to Judas. Judas eats it. And John's gospel says that he was so committed to his plans of evil that Satan entered his heart. He ran out of the room and he went in order to build a band of soldiers to come and arrest him that very night. Some people love to ask questions about scripture. Like, was, was he accountable? I mean, like somebody had to do it. It really wasn't his fault. People love to do this. It's a thousand year promise. And so somebody had to betray him. Otherwise it wouldn't have happened. And like, can we really fault him? And there's a lot of questions. I don't know, but I just look at what Jesus said next. The son of man goes as it is written of him, meaning I came to fulfill what's said of the son of man, but woe or condemned, eternally condemned. To the man by whom the son of man is betrayed, it would have been better for that man to have never been born. I, I can't imagine a harsher thing that our creator could say of us. So what I want us to do now is, is something that's a little less comfortable. Like it's not fun, but it's like, well, at least it's Judas. We can just poke at Judas all day, right? Yeah, it was him. What a horrible guy he was, but it wasn't me. But what I want us to do, and I think it's really important, is for us to consider our capacity to betray Jesus. Our capacity to betray Jesus. You see, we've all seen the ridicule in our country that's directed at Jesus and his word. And therefore, we've probably all felt the risk of publicly associating ourselves with him. We've all probably had moments in life where we had an opportunity to share the gospel. We had an opportunity to stand up for Jesus. And for whatever reason, fear or something else, we didn't. And then we're driving home or walking home or later on, we think, oh, I wish I would have done that differently. I wish I would have made a stand for Jesus. First Corinthians 10 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What that means is that there's some characteristics in Judas that are also seen in us. And when they are, we should take heed and run harder to Christ, to Christ's word and to his people. So what are some of these things? Let me show you five of them. First thing to consider is that we all have potential to do evil. I don't need to probably spend a whole lot of time here. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I could simply ask you, have you ever done something that you wish you didn't do? Something that was wrong. But you wanted to. That's the biggest problem. Not just that you did. You wanted to. We all have the potential to do evil, to do things that we wish we wouldn't have done. And Judas had that same potential. The second thing I want you to consider about our capacity to betray Jesus is that we all protect a showroom while hiding a messy storeroom. In other words, that there's things about your life that you prefer to keep hidden. And some of the better things about your life you prefer to showcase before others. And we're pretty good at separating the two. And so we polish up the front, making sure everybody sees, hey, this is a pretty noble person. This is a kind person. And yet we can be just an absolute wreck 
in our heart. We all know the reality of this. You see, many of us, we kind of imagine Judas as this, this evil presence. You know, he's got like red horns and a tail and he's got these shifty eyes. And, but did you notice that when Jesus said, I want you to know that one of you will betray, nobody in the room said, oh, it's got to be Judas, right? I mean, he's, he's over there. No one thought of Judas. No one considered him. And one of the reasons they didn't consider him is because they trusted him. And we know they trusted him because that's who you make your accountant. And that's what they did. He carried the purse for the whole group. I don't know, like, we're not told how it worked out, but what we do know is that he was. And so I can just imagine one day they're all looking around like, who among this group should carry the money for the rest of us? Well, who do we trust the most? Judas. And that's where the money went. Nobody suspected him. And for many of us, nobody suspect us. Very few people would suspect just how messy our storeroom is. And so we should be very careful because we have that same capacity. Third is we all have doubts. This may encourage some of you because you're going to be like, oh, good, I'm not the only one. When Jesus sounds the alarm, you notice that they reply, it, they say, is it me, Lord? And the idea here is this, is they're saying, it's not me, is it? Is it me? Well, maybe me. It's not me though, right? Like, please tell me it's not me. I know it probably could be, but it's not, right? There's no confidence in their question. This is what you say when you're speaking to the one who searches every crevice of your heart and you know very well that he's going to find doubt there. Doubt of who he is, doubt that we have, is it worthwhile to follow this person? Doubt, all of us know that. And so in these moments of betrayal, it's really easy for us because we have that historical glance into our own heart. We know that we're not as rock solid as we should be. We all have doubts. The fourth thing, we all have a price. We all have a price. For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. That was enough. You give me 30 pieces and I'll betray him. Later on, when he's speaking to Peter, he says, I want you to know all of you are going to fall away tonight. I'm going to be struck and you're all going to run for the hills. Peter says, no way. And he goes, Peter, come on. An eight-year-old is going to scare you to death. Little girl is going to come up to you and ask you, do you know him? You know him. I know you know him. You're going to deny that you ever knew me. In other words, that night for the rest of the disciples, they revealed their price is personal safety. Now it's very clear that our price can change over time in particular as our love for Christ grows. This is evidenced by the fact that most of these, almost all except John, were all martyred for their faith. Eventually, they said there is no price. But on that night, that's not where their price was. The question I have for you is what is your price? And what is your price today? Loss of life, loss of liberty, loss of popularity. When do you walk away from his word? When do you walk away from his church? 
Will you walk when our world continues to grow more offended at the fact that we as a church at Providence are going to continue to preach what Jesus said, and that is that he is the only way to the Father and there is no other. That he and his word is the ultimate authority. That what he says about sin and righteousness is sin and righteousness. When we continue to preach and the world continues to get more uptight over the fact that we continue to preach the reality of hell, that two genders are assigned by God, the marriage is between a man and a woman, as Jesus said they are, will you walk? Will you walk if laws such as the Equality Act and what will be surely subsequent laws after that to intensify it? When we as a church are threatened or when we lose our tax status for not hiring staff members whose lifestyle violates our statement of faith, is that the day that you walk? What is your price today? It's really good for us to ask that question because we all have one. The fifth thing for us to consider in terms of our capacity is that we all have false ideas of a savior. All of us generate these false ideas of what Jesus is going to do for me, what he's going to bring to me. For Judas, he wanted a political Messiah who would punish Rome, reward the righteous and make him rich. I found in life that those who are most prone to betray Jesus, who continue to come to church are people who come to church for blessing, for experience, for feeling, for a second blessing, for riches, for healings, for something, for angels, but not for Jesus. They come for the byproducts of Jesus. They, they come to the candy machine and hope that he gives them a Twix, but they don't want to be next to the candy machine. You see, for Judas, Jesus was a means. For Mary, he was the end. For Judas, he represents religion that says, I serve God and therefore I must be rewarded. Mary represents the gospel. She says, I deserve nothing. And yet God and his love has given me everything by allowing me to be near Jesus. If you identify within your own life, the capacity for betrayal was very high. I beg you to run hard to Jesus, run to his word, run to his people. Well, later that night, Jesus went to the garden and he went there to pray Verse 37, it says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Three times he comes back to them and he finds his disciples sleeping. The third time in verse 45, he wakes them up and he says, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and he said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. Third thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the most willing victim of betrayal in history. 
Jesus had the power to stop all of this. In John's gospel, when the mob of soldiers arrived, they asked, I should say, Jesus asked, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, I am. And if you've ever seen a Thor movie, everybody just drops to the ground. They all pick themselves up and say, well, that was weird. Jesus is now again, who are you looking for? And they're like, don't say it. Don't say it. Cause he's going to say it again. And we're going to fall down again. He had authority and power to stop this train. He could have picked a different place. John 18 says Judas who had betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. In other words, Jesus intentionally went to this place where Judas could find him. He comes and he allows the kiss. I've often thought, man, if all the other stuff is happening, why do you got to kiss him now? Like, like now we understand which one is Jesus. We, no, no this, uh, this is how we're going to do it. I'm going to kiss him and then you're going to know who it is. And Jesus knew what was going to happen. He kisses him and Jesus says, do what you're going to do. See, Jesus willingly endured this betrayal because it was part of his plan to lay down his life for us. We're going to look next week. We're going to pick up here. They seize him and then they go and they falsely accuse him. They condemn him and then they crucify him. Romans 5.8 says it this way. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this demands a response. And the only fitting response that we're told within the scriptures is this, is to admit that you have a need to admit that you have a debt before God, to admit that it should have been you and it wasn't you. And to place your faith, to believe in Jesus Christ, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that he died on a cross and that he rose from the dead in order to save you and then to confess him by worshiping him for the rest of your life. Would you do that? Let me encourage you to place your faith in Jesus and worship him forever. You see, Jesus Christ is amazing, similar to his last act of kindness to Judas, where he extended the bread and said, you matter to me. I love you. You don't have to carry this out. So Jesus extends his invitation to you and to me to believe without reservation and to treasure him without shame. You can pray to him right now where you are seating. And where you're seated, you can pray, God, I see it should have been me. I am a sinner. I see I can't save myself. And I believe in Jesus. The Bible says he will forgive you of your sin. Would you do that? Please do that. For your own sake, trust him. Once Judas left, Jesus instituted a supper. We passed over this part. It's in verse 26. But he instituted a new supper, a new meal, the fulfillment of the Passover called the Lord's Supper. And it was only for those who believe. And that's what we're going to do now. The bread and the cup, they represent his body and blood. You notice he waited for Judas to leave. And the reason is because only believers are to take this. So if you've never trusted Christ, we welcome you to observe and to think about what you've heard. But don't take the bread and the cup because the Bible says to take the bread and the cup is to proclaim to others that you believe and treasure Jesus. The reality behind these two symbols. If you have trusted Christ, maybe you just did. If you just did, you can take it. 
we welcome you to the table. But if you have, the Bible says, before we take it, we should pray. So let me give you a moment right now just to pray. Confess your sin to him and thank him for what he has done. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for giving us your very best in Jesus. Jesus, thank you for living a a life of perfection and love, humility and mercy. You're the least deserving person who's ever walked the earth to be betrayed, and yet you were so willing, and we know you were willing because you loved us. You came to do it in our place. And so we sing to you now. We know we have many sins in our heart, but we praise you that your mercy is even more. So help us to sing to you now with all of our heart, as Mary did. In Jesus' name, amen.